Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to start our new study, Into the Wilderness. It's a study of the book of Exodus. Um, if you remember, a couple of months back before Christmas, we studied Joseph Brothers uh, and how they came to know the Lord through the process of God creating a famine or the promise of a famine. Joseph, the brother, uh, uh, was... Uh, through a series of events of being sold by his brothers into slavery, he made his way into Egypt, and then eventually he became second only to Pharaoh. Pharaoh had a series of dreams about skinny cows and fat cows, and the skinny cows eating the fat cows, and God used that as a way to pull eventually Joseph's family to Egypt. And, they, and it was this process that God did, and, and uh, one of the things that we looked at when we went through that series was how God used that to bring the brothers to the Lord. And there had to be this moment of forgiveness between Joseph and the brothers. And, and, uh, and you have this great reveal, which to me is one of the all-time, one of the great passages of Scripture where Joseph reveals himself to the brothers and the brothers realize, oh my goodness, this is Joseph, the guy that we sold, our brother we sold into slavery. And so that's where Genesis typically kind of ends. Exodus begins with that idea. And so uh, if you're turning the book of Exodus chapter 1, it ends uh, with the Hebrews a word for in Egypt. Uh, Genesis chapter 50 says, so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that's kind of where the book ends, Genesis ends. And by the time we get to the book of Exodus, 400 years have passed. Genesis 50 says, so Joseph died, was 110 years old, they embalmed him, and they put him in a coffin. And by the time we get there, 400 years have passed, and, have been, and God's people have been enslaved. They've been put into slavery. So you have this drastic picture from where we leave them in Genesis to where we pick up in the book of Exodus. In Genesis, they were the favored people. They were Joseph's family, who, and they loved Joseph because he had led them through this great famine. Otherwise, they would have starved to death. They would not have prepared ahead. And so they loved Joseph, and they gave Joseph this special place called Goshen, and his family lived there. It was the best of the land, and Pharaoh favored Joseph and his family. And we see that by Genesis 15, it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, now this is, our, this, this is later, right? So in the book of Abram, I mean uh, in the book of Genesis, you have the Lord said to Abram, which is earlier in the story, For know for certain that your, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So you already have this promise of going out of the land. And by the time the, uh, God's people find themselves in Egypt, they realize that this is where they're going to be enslaved. This is where they're going to have to be, uh, be servants. And so they had already a, a promise of going out. And the Hebrew title for the book of Exodus comes from two Hebrew words in the text translated, and these are the names. That's what it means. And so at the beginning of Exodus, you have a word that's not there in your English, but it says, and. So you have Joseph dying, he's put in a coffin, and then it picks up in Exodus, and these are the generations that follow. These are the descendants. So the book of Exodus is God keeping his promise. Egypt's time of judgment is going to be arriving. There's these sands in the hourglass that have been dripping for 400 years, and now that last grain of sand of time is dropped, and there's this moment in time 
uh, this grain of sand where God is going to keep his word. Also, and I just want to highlight this before we jump into the text itself, because you're going to see this again and again and again throughout the book as we go through it, is that there is a battle that is taking place. There is God, the one true God, the, the God of Jacob and Isaac, and, and then there's also worldly gods. You this, in this case, it's Pharaoh, right? But it could be any of another worldly king. And what we're going to see is that there's a satanic uh, movement that's kind of going on there. We're going to look at why that is in just a second. Going against God. And so you have this showdown. And God is, God's people need to know that there is a one true God, that he is all-powerful, and also the world needs to be reminded of who this one true God is. And so as Pharaoh and Egypt are fooled by Satan into thinking that they were gods, that they ruled the world, but it was Satan behind the scenes. And so the Hebrew people were Yahweh's chosen. They were promised a land of milk and honey. They were going to multiply and increase. And so Pharaoh said, no, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let you do it. He thinks he's in charge. And so you have this battle that ensues. So before we jump into the text, I just want us to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray this morning as we begin to enter into this study of Exodus that we will understand the significance and the weight that this book holds, not only in ancient history, but also in our lives today. And Lord, it is so powerful of a book, and it speaks to us on so many different things, so many different levels. So Lord, I pray this morning that we'll be able to take it and apply it to our lives and that when we leave today, we'll be more like your son, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First big idea that we're going to look at is that one family can change the world. One family can change the world. Look at verse 1, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simon, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, God, and and Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob, were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The world was built around a family. You have Adam and Eve in the beginning of Genesis. So Satan attacked his first attack of creation uh, is the family he attacked the created order satan went to eve his first goal his his main thing was to get eve to doubt did god really say is to get him to get her to doubt god to get her to doubt her husband so satan's goal was to destroy the family because it because it's the building block of humanity it begins with a family and here in exodus we see another attack against god's plan here the plan is for the redemption of mankind through a family. And so in the book of Genesis you have this promise of a redeemer who's to come. And then later you have this calling of Abraham and the promise that the redeemer would come through his lineage. And then, and then, and then we find them in Egypt here. And this family of 70 has now grown to a huge multitude. And so in Genesis 12 God promises that Abraham and his descendants would become a great nation. This savior this promised in three would come through it. Look in Genesis, it says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will dishonor those who dishonor you, and I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
This is the promise of a Savior that's to come. The Savior would come through Abraham's lineage. The Israelites were increasing in number because God was blessing them. And when it says they multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them, it's the same word in Genesis that you have at creation where he created uh, the swarms of birds and the swarm and the 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 Lots of fish and lots of birds. In the south, we'd say it's a pile of them, right? It's a bunch of whatever it is he's talking about. In Genesis, he's talking about birds and fish. And here, this same word is used for God's people. They're multiplying at almost miraculous rate. It's just, it's constantly, everywhere you go, there's all these Israelites everywhere. And so, but the reason that he's doing that is because they played a major role in the redemption of mankind so the family grew from one man and his wife, Jacob, and then who, who the Bible also calls Israel, and to their sons and their families. To the, eventually there's the 12 tribes that are developed, that grow. And this initial family that we see in the early part is 70 people, but it has multiplied out. And so from this group, now we arrive at Exodus, where over a million of people are a part of this nation. And so God has blessed Abraham and his and he's kept his promise to make him into a great nation. But they will bless the entire world with a Savior. Will this happen? This is the question that's coming to bear here. Is that you have this promise of God that a Savior is to come. He hasn't arrived yet. It's through this people of lineage of Abraham. And it's through this group of people. But the Savior hasn't come. And so now you have this battle that takes place. This battle of who is, who is the one true God. Satan wants to stop this process. And so the story moves from a mentioning a family to now referring to a nation. And it says Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. All the previous generation, even the great leader and dreamer Joseph, are now gone. And the writer is emphatic to show the Israelites that who they are now must be understood in connection with who came before and, and who they were. If this generation is to make it moving forward, they have to understand who the previous generations are and what they've stood for. So Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, Esther, Ruth, Noah, Peter, John, Matthew, these are not just stories that we read. They're not just people that existed in history. These are people of faith that have passed down to us God's word and what it means to be a follower of the one true word, the true one true God. And this same God is with us now. The same God was with them centuries ago. What is this God like? It's the same God. And we will pass what we understand and what the Bible teaches on to the next generation. And so the purpose of God's family, right? This is what Satan is trying to destroy. The purpose of God's family is to remain faithful to God despite the consequences here it's slavery and genocide and some other things these horrific things that are going on and to pass his truth on to the next generation Satan will, will strike and he will attempt to destroy that idea of why the church family exists and then why the basic building block of society exists the family secondly one family can change the world. Secondly, the thing that we see is the worse things get, the stronger God's people, God's family become. Let's look at verse 8. Now there arose a, great, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities of Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their, slave, they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so in the, verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So another way to translate this is, there is a new king, a new king arose in the land of Egypt who didn't take the time to, to remember who Joseph was. He's on the hieroglyphs, he's in all the records. It's very clear of who Joseph was, but it was 400 years ago. And he doesn't, he doesn't take the effort, he chooses not to know Joseph. It is in the historical record, it's everywhere, but he chose not to take history into account. The new generation chose not to take into account the historical knowledge of the previous generations. And in Pharaoh's account, it's going to cost untold thousands of lives because of this pride that he took. The new Pharaoh is trying to control the Hebrew people because he's concerned that if their number becomes too great, it says that they're going to fight and escape the land. He's not worried about them taking over. He's worried about them escaping. The fear is that the, this prophecy that they have of this promised land will come to bear and, they, and they've made it known they want to leave they've received a prophecy they're, they're ready to go they want to get out of this situation but the Egyptians don't want to lose their slave labor force and so they keep them from rebelling to keep them from conspiring to keep them from multiplying they afflicted them with heavy burdens as slaves and again there's God blessing the Israelites and them becoming a nation but under this regime of slavery, they become subjects. And the Hebrews, who've been identified as a people, are in, they're in, they're in danger of losing their identity. The Egyptians, in their attempt to deal shrewdly with God's people, came up with a plan to keep them from multiplying by enslaving them. And so there's this crack of the whip that's in the text that you can kind of almost hear as it's read. So you have uh, afflicted them heavy burdens, oppressed, ruthlessly, slaves, bitter, hard service, work in the field. It's like, we're back, we're back. And the goal of slavery was to bend them down, to crush their spirit, so, and to, to banish this wish for liberty, to get rid of it. And so the harder they oppressed them, the more that they increased. The harder he drove them, the harder he made the work, the more they seemed to multiply. Psalm 105 helps us to kind of understand something that's going on here. Psalm 105, 25 says, Then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and he made them stronger than their foes. Right? So that's, we understand that. But here's the part that's important for us to get. He turned their hearts, that's the Egyptians, to hate his people, to deal craftily with the servants. God intentionally caused the Egyptians' hearts to turn against his own people. 
Why would God allow his people to go through such a horrific and difficult time? God should, should, God's going to show his power in the books, in the chapters to come. He's going to split the Red Sea. He's going to provide manna, manna from heaven. He's going he's to do all of these things. He's going to clearly make his strength known. So would it not have been just very easy for him, for them not to have to go through this? He was powerful enough to stop it. I have a couple of reasons I'd like to give you why he did this. Number one is to keep them detached. Look what happens in the chapters and books to come throughout the Old Testament when God's people have freedom to just be. Like when God blesses them and the land's there and, the, and the, they don't have to work that hard and it just everything's just there. It's just wonderful. They're, they're just a blessed people. They don't even have to fight. The battle's just won in front of them. They just have to be there. Like what happens when they get to that point in their life? What happens? You know, you know the story, right? They, they, sing, they start thinking, oh, we don't need God anymore. We did this in our own strength. Oh, we don't need God anymore. Uh, we're going to follow these other gods. And they get prophet after prophet that comes. He goes, no, you need to stop doing this. And they get warned. And, they, and they, every time they drift off away. And so then they have to be brought back. And the only way that God brings them back, or the main way, is through distress and suffering. They get captured, they get carried off into exile, they lose a battle, all of these things happen. Keeps them detached. Secondly, kind of the same idea but a little bit different is to keep them distinct. They could not be God's distinct people if they took on the ways of the Egyptians. What would, which they would have if they were left on their own. And before we get into the before we get onto these Old Testament believers too hard, I think it's also helpful historically to look back at the church, the New Testament church, the Christian church, right? What happens to us when things are wonderful and we have complete freedom and, and we are able to just exist in a nation and we're able to do all of these things? What happens to the church when we're just free to be as we are? We don't read our Bibles, we don't share Christ. We, you know, at church maybe occasionally, you know, whatever. It's like those things become less and less important. And the nations, whole nations have drifted away from the Lord. In Europe, where the, where the Reformation started, you can go there today. It's just, they're, they're the most lost places on the planet. Why is that? It's because the gospel flourished and people raised, but they had the freedom to do these things. So God is using slavery here to keep them distinct from Egypt. Thirdly. To keep them wanting to depart. Another reason is for their suffering was that it was they, if they simply blended into the Egyptian culture, if they had everything they wanted, if life was at ease, and God said, okay, now it's time to go, I, there would have been a heart thing that would be like, you know what? It's not that bad here. We kind of like it here. We're just going to stay here in Egypt. God says, no, I have, a, I have a plan. I have a thing that's, that's coming to be. It's going to be the promised land. Remember that? And they're going to like, no, no. No, we're good. And so you have this crack of the whip. that drives them to what God's plan is for them. Suffering drove them to realize the need also for a savior. They needed a deliverer. They needed to depart. The hardest people to reach with the gospel are the rich and the affluent. Why is that? They don't need anything. They don't need God. They don't need anything. They don't need the gospel they don't need it but it's those that cry out that say i need a savior i need help i need something those are the people that are open to hear the gospel 
So even with this ter- incredible suffering, it doesn't take very long before they get out, right? If you've read the book of Exodus, you know eventually they do get out, and they get right out there in the wilderness. They get out there, and then what's the first thing that they say? We want to go back. We want to go back to the slavery. They say to Moses, you brought us out here to die. We don't want to, you know. So even though as horrific and horrible as their life was, with the crack of the whip and the oppression, and they finally get out, they want to go back. So the, the suffering pushes them to leave. Fourthly, it's going to give others a chance to repent. We get a clue in Genesis chapter 15 where God was promising Abraham that he's going to be a great nation and they would have a land flowing with milk and honey uh, but they will also be in bondage and then it goes and they and then it, that verse in Genesis 15 says and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete what does that mean that means that God has a plan for the Amorites and they have an opportunity to respond to the one true God and his grace and mercy he's giving them time But at the end, they don't. The Amorites had 400 years to turn to the one true God, but there was a limit, and God said, okay, that's it. Now it's time for their judgment. And so here's the thing. Why why would God's people, or why would you, or me, or anybody else have to go through something as horrific as slavery and some other things we're going to look at? Why would we have to go through hard times? It's because God uses that in different ways. And in this instance, we see that there's a group of people called the Amorites, that God's doing something with them. God's also doing something with God's people, and it's like he's moving pieces around. And you say, well, why did I have to lose my job? Or why did I have to go through this disease? Or why did I have to do all of these things? We don't know. But just there's a hint here that you have this moving around of things that's going where your life intersects with somebody else's life. Or God's people here intersects with somebody else over here. There's all these different things going on that we just simply don't know. And so God has a purpose and plan for all of it. Fifthly, so that God's people can identify with those who have been enslaved and experienced death. This story of enslavement and death follow throughout all of the rest of the Bible. When Jesus points to salvation and he points to uh, what it means to be saved and when he points to all these things, he, uh, the, uh, the entire day, they all point back to the Exodus and what it meant for them to be enslaved. The recalling of oppression is to lead to an identification with those who suffer. So, there are many reasons why God allowed the Hebrew people to suffer. In my lack of wisdom, I just found those. I'm sure there's many more, uh, many more that we'll never know. But what we see is that God uses suffering. It has a purpose. For For his people, it was also redemptive. And so the Pharaoh said, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And so you have this picture of the wisdom of the world where Pharaoh is fighting against them. And he's fooled into thinking that he could stop God's plan. In 1 Corinthians 3.19, it says, For the wisdom of the world is folly to God. It's foolish. But Satan, but, but Satan is like a puppet master with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh thinks himself a god, the god of sun, and all these different things. And so we have this battle that ensues. So then we have, but the, the, before we move to the next couple of things, is that suffering pushes us away from the world 
and toward God's plan. And so if you uh, are experiencing something, or if you're going through difficult times, your family's going through difficult times, uh, you look back on God's people like, why would God's people have to go through these things? There is a purpose, and there is a redemptive element there. Who knows what it is? I don't know. But what we see, and again and again throughout Scripture, is that there is a purpose and plan. And so then, at this point, we get from slavery to something much worse. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and he said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're rigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then, verse 22, one of the most horrific passages in Scripture then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so when slavery doesn't work, to control the population size, Pharaoh turns to slaughter. His first attempt is to have the midwives secretly kill the, boy, kill the boys as they're being delivered. So you have the woman, she goes into birth, call the midwife, the midwife comes, and as she's delivering the child, she would secretly kill all the males. That was the plan. But they say, these women, these Egyptian, these uh, Hebrew women, they're very vigorous, and we, we, we're not fast enough. By the time we get there, they've already delivered the baby. Now see, there's some irony there, because... Here's what, here's what they're basically saying. These Hebrew women, they're like, they're like when they go to deliver a baby, it's like seconds before they deliver the baby. They're like Olympic athletes of delivering babies. They're like in like incredible shape. They're like incredibly strong. And like they're able to deliver babies like very fast before we can even get there. Well, how is it that they got so strong? And how is it that they got so fast? Because they're carrying bricks around all day. Like, there's some irony there, right? And so they're like, we, we, they're just incredibly strong. They're just, I mean, they delivered the babies before we could even get there. And so God blesses them for doing that. The midwives did what they could to protect the innocent life, and so God dwelt well, dealt well with them. But the midwives feared God, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Look at the blessing that he gave them. He gave them families. The midwives were commanded to destroy life, but they honored God above all authorities, and so they were rewarded with a family. God gave them what they were unwilling to take from someone else. They refused to take the life of an innocent, and so they were rewarded with this gift they knew was worthy of worth fighting for. Their reverence for life reflected a reverence for God. The reverence for God resulted in their being a house of Sapura and a house of Pua, the two, the two midwives' names. So when secret killing doesn't work, 
Pharaoh then gives the order for open genocide. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. And why males and not females if the goal is population control? Because we go back to Genesis chapter 3 where there's a promise of a Messiah. And the Messiah will come through the lineage. And so it doesn't help to solve that by killing the females, only the males. And so is Pharaoh thinking that? I don't think Pharaoh's thinking that. Pharaoh is being manipulated here by Satan. Pharaoh doesn't understand that he's being manipulated, but Satan knows that the Redeemer is through this chosen people's bloodline, and his goal is to keep them from being what God has designed them to be. Such non-compliance with the law on humanitarian grounds is rooted in a creation theology. We have to understand this. God is the God of creation, the God of Jacob, Isaac, and all this. He's the one that created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why is Genesis and the creation account so important? Because everything flows from that. And this idea that I'm made in the image of God, and you're made in the image of God, and you're made in the image of God, everybody, whether you're slave, free, white, black, rich, poor, doesn't matter. We're all made in the image of God, and that has value. But if you remove that identity... If you take God out of the picture, then suddenly I can, you, I can make you have whatever value I want you to have. When you don't have a God of creation theology, then flinging babies into the river becomes much easier. They're just, they're just a thing. They're not a person. There's us, and then there's them. And we can define that thing however it is and we throw it away because it doesn't have there's no connection to a morality there's no there's no hierarchy of understanding we don't understand that God created us and that in that there's value and that all of us have value his goal is to keep them from becoming what he's designed them to be so they're subhuman they're slaves they're cattle they're not like us then Pharaoh commanded all his people, all of them, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. All of Egypt has been recruited to destroy the population explosion of the enemy. And the Egyptian people had to go along with this order for it to be accepted. Pharaoh could have just said it, no one followed it, like the midwives. The Egyptian people had to go along with this to happen. They had to accept it. And so the nation went along with this genocide of countless unknown children, babies. And did they believe that there would not be a day of reckoning? If you, if you go ahead a little bit further in the story to Exodus chapter 12, 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. God chose the gnats, he chose the frogs, he chose the, all the different plagues that were to come. Why the death of the firstborn? Set down, Pharaoh sat on his throne, or the lamb from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And the Pharaoh rose up in the night, 
he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was dead, was not dead. The Egyptians were made to suffer in the same way that the Israelites had suffered. Horrific. Horrific. There's two enemies of God's people. Bondage, which is the sin, and death. We see this laid out before us in this opening chapter. Once we are captured, we are bound in sin, and that sin will always lead to death. I don't know how many times I have shared the gospel. I think, I think in our minds as God's people, we tend to put it in the form of almost childish understanding. Like the depth of the gospel is, is so shallow. But when you get to Exodus, you see that sin and bondage are horrific horrific and when you get to this idea of a need for a savior and a need for a deliverer what we are being delivered from is this type of horror it's not that oh you know I, I sin and kind of take a drink every now and then or I just need to kind of ask God to forgive me of that uh, it's way deeper way bigger than that Two enemies here. And what God's people needed was a Savior to free them. Look at John chapter 8. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the result of that is that now we are shackled. We are bound to that sin. We carry it around like a weight. You can't get rid of it. And eventually it leads to death. The sin that enslaves us, the result of that is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, what we've earned, the wages of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are freed from shackles of sin. We're freed from all of these things through a deliverer in the scripture who's to come. But in our account, we know Jesus has already come. Do you know Jesus today? Have you made him your savior? Do you understand how you have been shackled to sin and how he came to free us. In, this, in the next week, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 2, which is Moses' birth and kind of what he means and how he tries to deliver the people, but in a way that's not God-ordained. It's, God, it's not God's plan, but he does it his way. We're going to look at all of that. I encourage you to be here. But tonight, to this morning, Satan attacks two big things in this opening chapter. He attacks the family, and he attacks God's purpose for his people. God, Satan will try to attack your family, he will try to attack God's family, and he will try to keep you from understanding what your purpose is. He's going to attack that. And we see that again and again throughout Scripture, but specifically here, Genesis chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Scriptures. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I thank you that I follow the one true God who is the giver of grace and mercy and love and life. And Lord, we have a very real enemy that attacks us at all angles, that keeps us from trying to uh, understand that. And Lord, I pray this morning that you will be able to take your word 
drive it deep within all of our hearts. And Lord, I believe that there's probably some things that you were laid on our heart that we need to ask your forgiveness for. Lord, it might be there might be a relationship I need to go and talk with someone about. Lord, it might be someone within my family. Whatever it might be, Lord, I just pray that you will move during our time of invitation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Greg's going to lead us in a song. Please.